Chapter Three, Part Three of the Sorceress of the Strand, by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Face of the Abbot, Part Three. The scenery as we approached the spurs of the Estrella was magnificent beyond description, and as I gazed up at the great peaks now bathed in the purples and golds of the sunset, the magic and mystery of our strange mission became tenfold intensified. Presently the steep ascent began along a winding road between high walls that shut out our view, and by the time we reached the castle it was too dark to form any idea of its special features. De Castro had already sent word of our probable arrival, and when we rang the bell at the old castle a phlegmatic-looking man opened the door for us. "'Ah, Gonsalves!' cried De Castro. "'Here we are. I trust you have provided comfortable beds and a good meal.' for we are all as hungry as hawks. The old man shrugged his shoulders, raised his beetle brows a trifle, and fixed his eyes on Helen with some astonishment. He muttered, in a Portuguese dialect which I did not in the least comprehend, something to de Castro, who professed himself satisfied. Then he said something further, and I noticed the face of my Portuguese friend turn pale. Gonsalves saw the spectre three nights ago, he remarked, turning to me. It was leaning as usual out of one of the windows of the northwest turret. But come, we must not terrify ourselves the moment we enter your future home, Niece Helen. You are doubtless hungry. Shall we go to the banqueting hall? The supper prepared for us was not appetizing, consisting of some miserable goat chops, and in the great hall, dimly lighted by a few candles and silver sconces, we could scarcely see each other's faces. As supper was coming to an end, I made a suggestion. We have come here, I said, on a serious matter. We propose to start an investigation of a very grave character. It is well known that ghosts prefer to reveal themselves to one man or woman alone, and not to a company. I propose, therefore, that we three should occupy rooms as far as possible from each other in the castle, and that the windows of our three bedrooms should command the center square. De Castro shrugged his shoulders, and a look of dismay spread for a moment over his face but Helen fixed her great eyes on mine. Her lips moved slightly, as though she would speak. Then she pulled herself together. "'You are right, Mr. Druce,' she said. "'Having come on this inquiry, we must fear nothing. Well, come at once, and we will choose our bedrooms. You, as the lady, shall have the first choice.' De Castro called Gonsalves, who appeared holding a lantern in his hand. A few words were said to the man in his own dialect, and he led the way, going up many stone stairs, down many others, and at last he flung open a huge oak door, and we found ourselves in a vast chamber with five windows, all mullioned and sunk in deep recesses. On the floor was a heavy carpet. A four-post bedhead with velvet hangings was in a recess. The rest of the furniture was antique and massive, nearly black with age, but relieved by brass mountings, which, strange to say, were bright, as though they had recently been rubbed. "'This was poor Sherwood's own bedroom,' said de Castro. "'Do you mind sleeping here?' He turned to Helen. "'No, I should like it,' she replied emphatically. "'I am glad that this is your choice,' he said, "'for I don't believe, although I am a man and you are a woman, that I could myself endure this room. It was here. I watched his dead body. Ah, poor fellow! I loved him well.' "'We won't talk of memories to-night,' said Helen. "'I am very tired, and I believe I shall sleep. Strange as it may sound, I am not afraid. 
Mr. Druce, where will you locate yourself? I should like, at least, to know what room you will be in. I smiled at her. Her bravery astonished me. I selected a room at right angles to Helen's. Standing in one of her windows, she could, if necessary, get a glimpse of me, if I were to stand in one of mine. De Castro chose a room equally far away from Helen's on the other side. We then both bade the girl good night. "'I hate to leave her so far from help,' I said, glancing at de Castro. "'Nothing will happen,' he replied. "'I can guarantee that. "'I am dead tired. "'The moment I lay my head on my pillow, ghost or no ghost, I shall sleep till morning.' He hurried off to his own room. The chamber that I had selected was vast, lofty, and might have accommodated twenty people. I must have been more tired even than I knew, for I fell asleep when my head touched the pillow. When I awoke it was dawn, and eager to see my surroundings by the light of day, I sprang up, dressed, and went down to the courtyard. Three sides of this court were formed by the castle buildings, but along the fourth ran a low balustrade of stone. I sauntered towards it. I shall never forget the loveliness of the scene that met my eyes. I stood upon what was practically a terrace, a mere shelf on the scarping of rock on the side of a dizzy cliff that went down below me a sheer two thousand feet. The Mondego River ran with a swift rushing noise at the foot of the gorge, although at the height at which I stood it looked more like a thread of silver than anything else. Towering straight in front of me, solemnly up into the heavens, stood the great peak of the Serra da Estrella, from which, in the rosy sunrise, the morning clouds were rolling into gigantic white wreaths. Behind me was the great irregular pile of the castle, with its battlements, turrets, and cupolas, hoar and grey with the weight of centuries, but now transfigured and bathed in the golden light. I had just turned to glance at them when I saw de Castro approaching me. Surely, I said, there never was such a beautiful place in the world before. We can never let it go out of the family. Helen shall live here. De Castro came close to me. He took my arm and pointed to a spot on the stone flags. On this very spot her father fell from the battlements above, he said slowly. I shuddered, and all pleasant thoughts were instantly dispelled by the memory of that hideous tragedy and the work we had still to do. It seemed impossible in this radiant living sunlight to realize the horror that these walls had contained and might still contain. At some of these very windows the ghastly face had appeared. Helen, de Castro, and I spent the whole day exploring the castle. We went from dungeons to turrets, and made elaborate plans for alternate nightly vigils. One of the first things that I insisted on was that Gonsalves should not sleep in the castle at night. This was easily arranged, the old man having friends in the neighboring village. Thus the only people in the castle after nightfall would be de Castro, Helen, and myself. After we had locked old Gonsalves out and raised the portcullis, we again went the complete round of the entire place. Thus we ensured that no one else could be hiding in the precincts. Finally, we placed across every entrance thin silken threads which would be broken if anyone attempted to pass them. Helen was extremely anxious that the night should be divided into three portions and that she should share the vigils. But this both de Castro and I prohibited. At least for to-night, I said, sleep soundly, trust the matter to us. 
Believe me, this will be best. All arrangements are made. Your uncle will patrol until one o'clock in the morning, then I will go on duty. This plan was evidently most repugnant to her, and when de Castro left the room, she came up and began to plead with me. I have a strange and overpowering sensation of terror, she said. Fight as I will, I cannot get rid of it. I would much rather be up than in that terrible room. I slept last night, because I was too weary to do anything else, but I am wakeful to-night, and I shall not close my eyes. Let me share your watch, at least. Let us pace the courtyard side by side. No, I answered, that would not do. If two of us are together, the ghost, or whatever human being poses as the ghost, will not dare to put in an appearance. We must abide by our terrible mission, Helen. Each must watch alone. You will go to bed now, like a good girl, and to-morrow night, if we have not then discovered anything, you will be allowed to take your share in the night watch. Very well, she answered. She sighed impatiently, and after a moment she said, I have a premonition that something will happen to-night. As a rule, my premonitions come right. I made no answer, but I could not help giving her a startled glance. It is one thing to be devoid of ghostly terrors when living in practical London, surrounded by the world and the ways of men, but it is another thing to be proof against the strange terror which visits all human beings more or less when they are alone, when it is night, when the heart beats low. Then we are apt to have distorted visions, our mental equilibrium is upset, and we fear we know not what. Helen and I knew that there was something to fear, and as our eyes met we dared not speak of what was uppermost in our thoughts. I could not find de Castro, and presumed that he had taken up his watch without further ado. I therefore retired to my own room and prepared to sleep, but the wakefulness which had seized Helen was also mine, for when the Portuguese entered my bedroom at one o'clock I was wide awake. "'You have seen nothing?' I said to him. "'Nothing,' he answered cheerfully. "'The moon is bright. The night is glorious. It is my opinion that the apparition will not appear.' "'I will take the precaution to put this in my pocket,' I said, and I took up my revolver, which was loaded. As I stepped out into the courtyard, I found that the brilliant moonlight had lit up the northwest wall and the turrets, but the sharp black shadow of the south wall lay diagonally across the yard. Absolute stillness reigned, broken only by the croaking of thousands of frogs from the valley below. I sat down on a stone bench by the balustrade and tried to analyze my feelings. For a time, the cheerfulness which I had seen so marked on de Castro's face seemed to have communicated itself to me. My late fears vanished. I was not even nervous. I found it difficult to concentrate my thoughts on the object which had brought me so far from England. My mind wandered back to London and to my work there, but by degrees, as the chill stole over me and the stillness of night began to embrace me, I found myself glancing ever and again at those countless windows and deep embrasures, while a queer, overpowering tension began to be felt, and against my own will a terror, strange and humiliating, overpowered me. I knew that it was stronger than I, and fight against it as I would, I could not overcome it. The instinctive dread of the unknown that is at the bottom of the bravest man's courage was over me. Each moment it increased, and I felt that if the hideous face were to appear at one of the windows, I would not be answerable for my self-control. Suddenly, as I sat motionless, 
my eyes riveted on the windows of the old castle, I felt, or fancied I felt, that I was not alone. It seemed to me that a shadow moved down in the courtyard and close to me. I looked again. It was coming towards me. It was with difficulty I could suppress the scream, which almost rose to my lips. The next instant I was glad that I had not lost my self-control, when the slim, cold hand of Helen Sherwood touched mine. "'Come,' she said softly. She took my hand and, without a word, led me across the courtyard. "'Look up,' she said. I did look up, and then my heart seemed to stop, and every muscle in my body grew rigid as though from extreme cold. At one of the first-floor windows in the northwest tower, there in the moonlight lent the apparition itself, a black, solemn figure, its arms crossed on the sill, a large, round face of waxy whiteness, features immobile and fixed in a hideous, unwinking stare right across the courtyard. My heart gave a stab of terror. Then I remained absolutely rigid. I forgot the girl by my side in the wild beating of my pulse. It seemed to me that it must beat itself to death. "'Call my uncle,' whispered Helen, and when I heard her voice I knew that the girl was more self-possessed than I was. "'Call him,' she said again, loudly, at once. I shouted his name. "'De Castro! De Castro! It is here!' The figure vanished at my voice. "'Go,' said Helen again. "'Go. I will wait for you here. Follow it at once.' I rushed up the stairs towards the room where de Castro slept. I burst open his door. The room was empty. The next instant I heard his voice. "'I am here. Here,' he said. "'Come at once. Quick!' In a moment I was at his side. "'This is the very room where it stood,' I said. I ran to the window and looked down. De Castro followed me. Helen had not moved. She was still gazing up. The moonlight fell full on her white face. "'You saw it, too?' gasped de Castro. "'Yes,' I said, and so did Helen. It stood by this window. "'I was awake,' he said, "'and heard your shout. I rushed to my window. I saw the spectre distinctly, and followed it to this room. You swear you saw it? It was the face of the abbot.' My brain was working quickly. My courage was returning. The unfathomable terror of the night scene was leaving me. I took de Castro suddenly by both his arms, and turned him round, so that the moonlight should fall upon him. "'You and I are alone in this tower. Helen Sherwood is in the courtyard. There is not another living being in the whole castle. Now listen. There are only two possible explanations of what has just occurred. Either you are the spectre, or it is supernatural.' "'I!' he cried. "'Are you mad?' "'I well might be,' I answered bitterly. "'But of this I am certain. You must prove to me whether you are the apparition or not. I make this suggestion now in order to clear you from all possible blame. I make it that we may have absolute evidence that could not be upset before the most searching tribunal. Will you now strip before me? Yes, before you leave the room, and prove that you have no mask hidden anywhere on you. If you do this I shall be satisfied. Pardon my insistence.' but in a case like the present there must be no loophole. "'Of course, I understand you,' he said. "'I will remove my clothes.' In five minutes he had undressed and dressed again. There was no treachery on his part. There was no mask, nor any possible means of his simulating that face on his person. "'There is no suspicion about you,' I said, almost with bitterness. 
by heavens, I wish there were. The awfulness of this thing will drive me mad. Look at that girl standing by herself in the courtyard. I must return to her. Think of the courage of a woman who would stand there alone. He made no answer. I saw that he was shivering. Why do you tremble? I said suddenly. Because of the nameless fear, he replied. Remember, I saw her father. I saw him with the terror on him. He ran along the battlements. He threw himself over. He died. He was dashed to pieces on the very spot where she is standing. Get her to come in, Druce. I will go and speak to her, I said. I went back to the courtyard. I rejoined Helen, and in a few words told her what had occurred. You must come in now, I said. You will catch your death of a cold standing here. She smiled a slow, enigmatic sort of smile. I have not given up the solution yet, she said, nor do I mean to. As she spoke, she took her revolver from her belt, and I saw that she was strangely excited. Her manner showed intense excitement, but no fear. I suspect foul play, she said. As I stood here and watched you and Uncle Petro talking to each other by that window, I felt convinced. I am more than ever convinced. She broke off suddenly. Look! Oh, heaven, look! What is that? She had scarcely uttered the words before the same face appeared at another window to the right. Helen gave a sharp cry, and the next instant she covered the awful face with her revolver and fired. A shrill scream rang out on the night air. "'It is human, after all,' said Helen. "'I thought it was. Come.' She rushed up the winding stairs. I followed. The door of the room where we had seen the spectre was open. We both dashed in. Beneath the window lay a dark, huddled heap, with the moonlight shining on it, and staring up with the same wide-open eyes was the face of the abbot. Just for a moment neither Helen nor I dared to approach it, but after a time we cautiously drew near the dark mass. The figure never moved. I ran forward and stretched out my hand. Closer and closer I bent, until my hand touched the face. It was human flesh and was still warm. Helen, I said, turning to the girl, go at once and find your uncle. But I had scarcely uttered the words before Helen burst into a low, choking laugh, the most fearful laugh I had ever heard. Look, look, she said, for before our eyes the face tilted, foreshortened, and vanished. We were both gazing into the countenance of the man whom we knew as Pedro de Castro. His face was bathed in blood and convulsed with pain. I lit the lantern, and as I once more approached, I saw, lying on the ground by his side, something hairy, which for an instant I did not recognize. The next moment I saw what it was. It explained everything. It was a wig. I bent still nearer, and the whole horrible deception became plain as daylight, for painted upon the back of the man's perfectly bald head, painted with the most consummate skill, giving the startling illusion of depth and relief and all the hideous expression that had terrified one man, at least, out of the world, was the face of the abbot. The wig had completely covered it, and so skillfully was it made, that the keenest observer would never have suspected it was one, it being itself slightly bold in order to add to the deception. There in that dim, bare room, in broken sentences, in a voice that failed as his life passed, de Castro faltered out the story of his sin. "'Yes,' he said. 
I have tried to deceive you, and Gonzalves aided me. I was mad to risk one more appearance. Bend nearer, both of you. I am dying. Listen. Upon this estate, not a league across the valley, I found six months ago alluvial gold in great quantities in the bed of the gully, in the Biblioteca Bolica in Lisbon. I had years before got accounts of mines worked by the Phoenicians, and was firmly persuaded that some of the gold still remained. I found it, and to get the full benefit of it, I devised the ghastly scheme which you have just discovered. I knew that the castle was supposed to be haunted by the face of an old monk. Sherwood, with all his peculiarities, was superstitious. Very gradually I worked upon his fears, and then, when I thought the time ripe for my experiment, personated the apparition. It was I who flung him from the battlements with my own hand. I knew that the terms of the will would divert all suspicion from me, and had not your shot, Ellen, been so true, you would never have come here to live. Well, you have avenged your father and saved yourself at the same time. You will find in the safe in a corner of the banqueting hall plans and maps of the exact spot where the gold is to be found. I could have worked there for years unsuspected. It is true that I should have lost ten thousand pounds, but I should have gained five times the amount. Between four and five months ago, I went to see a special friend of mine in London. She is a woman who stands alone as one of the greatest criminals of her day. She promised at once to aid me, and she suggested, devised, and executed the whole scheme. She made the wig herself, with its strangely bald appearance so deceptive to the ordinary eye, and she painted the awful face on my bald skull. When you searched me just now, you suspected a mask, but I was safe from your detection. To remove or replace the wig was the work of an instant. The woman who had done all this was to share my spoils. Her name? I cried. Sarah, the great, the invincible, he murmured. As he spoke the words, he died. End of chapter 3